Mark, in Sierra 6, we see Court Gentry's early days with the Goon Squad. Why did you decide now was the time to tell that part of his story? I had been thinking about it for years that I wanted to tell some sort of an origin story because here we are 11 books in. And if you stayed with the series, I've alluded to a lot of things, but hadn't fleshed them out. But the problem with that was once it came time to say, okay, let's do an origin story book is you realize that everybody knows that in the present day, your hero is alive and kicking. So it loses a little bit of the tension to talk about events in the past. So once I had the idea to kind of tie in a contemporary story with something in the past and have the two things weave together and and relate to one another. Then I finally had a eureka moment. I was like, okay, I can do this and put all the tension, you know, in the story and introduce other characters and show characters that I haven't shown for 10 books and get them back into the mix. So it it was kind of fun. It was, it was daunting, but it was kind of a fun challenge. So when you start to write The Gray Men, how much of this backstory did you already have in mind and how much more of the 12 years ago stuff did you have to come up with? Well, when I started to write this book, I came up with most of this stuff. It was just going and checking things in earlier books, make sure I didn't kind of trip up over other things that I'd said. So, you know, if I'd said something like Court had never worked in Belarus and then I'd 12 years ago, I have them in Belarus. People are going to call me out on that. So I had to look at a bunch of little things like that. But as far as The Gray Man, when I wrote the first book way back in 2007, came out in 2009, I had no real backstory for my character other than what was in the book. I had no plan for future novels past the first one. I was just trying to get published. So I created some problems for myself, writing things that later on you're going, like, okay, what, what was I thinking here <laughs> to, to kind of make it weave in with the previous plot line. So you don't have some nerd that's made up like a, a wiki concordance for you that has like all the locations and people in one big file? No, I don't. My publisher, because I was kind of whining about it to my publisher once, and they created like one PDF document with all of my eBooks connected so I can search for terms or names or things like that. And that's actually proved really helpful because I'll be like, okay, I, what did I say about his father? And I can type in James Gentry and it will show me all the places where I've mentioned that. And I, I can catch up with that. There is a wiki page for gray man. And there will be a point in my career when I'm referring to that to, uh, <laughs> to remind myself of certain things, because even though this is my 11th gray man book, it's my 21st published novel and I've finished my 22nd. So it all gets a little jumbly in your head after a while. Yeah. I don't know how you do that two books a year, sometimes more business. Yeah. It's a weird bounce back and forth. And the complicated part is you have to edit. You're, you're like hard at work on, let's say a Tom Clancy book. And then you have to edit a gray man book right in the middle of it. You say, all right, for the next week, I'm going back to that book. If it was six months on one project and it was totally wrapped and then six months on the next project and it was totally wrapped, that'd be a little bit easier, but it's There's always complications, but I I guess I've done it for so long. Every time I I get really frustrated or freaked out about it, I'm like, you did this 10 years ago. You can do it now. And now that you're moving up in years, how is the memory doing keeping those couple of different worlds separate? I ask myself that because I do get confused by stuff, but then there's just more stuff to keep track of with all the projects and everything I'm writing. So, I mean, I'm sure that will work into it at some point. At that point, I'll just write less. I don't have to write two books a year. I do for the next three years because I've (laughs) agreed to write particular books. But I've been saying, and I'm sure I've said it to you for five years, if not more, it's just not sustainable to write two books, you know, forever. So I think I'm coming to the end of that. Although 
I like to keep writing the Gray Man books, and I always have some other thing that I want to work on. So I might just do, uh, you know, one one year, two the next year, and kind of taper down a little bit. Now, as Sierra 6 opens up, we start off 12 years ago on a mission on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. What is Golf Sierra up to there? Yeah, so the Golf Sierra unit is a paramilitary task force in the CIA Special Activities Division. Now they're called the Special Activities Center. So nobody emailed me that I got that wrong. Back then they were called the SAD, Special Activities Division. They are on the Afghan-Pakistan border, and it's their mission to go to a fort just inside Pakistan, or I think about 30 miles inside Pakistan, because they're expecting a high-ranking member of a new terrorist organization to be making an appearance. It's a group called the Kashmiri Resistance Front. And there's a former army officer in Pakistan who is allegedly a member of this organization. And they think if they can bag this guy, they can get information about the leader of the organization. Most Americans of a certain age are just going to know Kashmir from Led Zeppelin. What, <laughs> what, what, what are the political aims of the, the Kashmiri resistance here? Well, I won't go too deep into it, but I mean, the Kashmir region is on the disputed border between India and Pakistan. So it's been going on for a really long time. Like a lot of places, these border lines were drawn by third party nations. I, I think it was the UK, you know, that sort of drew the lines of where this border is and this border is not taking into account you know, the ethnicity of the people there. And I mean, that happens all over the world. But in this case, the Kashmiris in Pakistan want to unify with the Kashmiris on the Indian side of the border. Now we have about three chapters detailing this particular engagement. And then we're taken to present day Algeria, where Court Gentry is supposed to be on a pretty low risk mission. In the present timeline, he is a freelance intelligence asset, and he thinks he's working for the Indian government. He basically is working for the Indian government through a proxy, and he has a very simple job just to deploy a device to pick up some cell phone transmissions because there's a Pakistani national who's supposedly going to be spending the night in the embassy. And Court has only taken this job because he realizes that this character is supposedly a member of the Foreign Coordination Unit, the FCU, which is part of the Pakistani Intelligence Service. They're part of the ISI. And he actually wants to go there and, and get that guy and interrogate him about the events that happened in the earlier timeline 12 years ago, because he knows that the FCU was involved in that. Now, he's not on this mission solo. He's got some eyes in the sky, and it's not this person's first rodeo. Right. As I say in the book, it's her second time. <laughs> I just graduated from college, was a student in computer sciences. And as it turns out, her uncle is court's handler on this operation. And he's gotten her to do some ISR work, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. So she's basically flying a drone and communicating with court through an earpiece about the disposition of the people in the embassy and all that. But she is very new to this and trying to hide it to court, who she can instantly tell is an incredibly seasoned operator. She's got a little bit too much confidence in her drone flying skills because she hasn't been at it very long. Yeah, I guess that's what I was doing. It was a device. She's discovered by the, the opposition. So I write in there that people who fly drones just expect that other people can't see them because they're small. But they do make noise and light can catch off of them or whatever. And there are there are actually anti-UAV devices, including these cameras that can kind of look up at, at the sky and identify foreign objects, you know, flying low or slow or hovering. 
And so that's what happens here. The Pakistanis recognize that somebody is kind of overwatching this operation. Court's code name is Cobalt and her code name is Copper. Why did you select those particular elements to be representative of them? You know, there's no rhyme or reason in that that I can remember. I'd love to come up with something good. I just thought it sounded cool. I, I might have done some kind of Google search to give me an idea, or maybe I just picked one and then tried to pick another. Court is known by so many different names and nicknames and nom de gurs in this series at different times. But that's actually kind of realistic. I was a ghostwriter on a book for a guy who was in Delta Force. And I remember when we were working on the book together, he was correcting me saying like, okay, well, this guy wouldn't be read in on this guy's code name because he's a, a peer and this person would call him this and this person would refer to him by his regular call sign. And I remember going like, you know, in the first six pages of this book, our hero has five different names. <laughs> but so, so it is kind of a realistic thing. You know, you are called different things at different times. But just for this little private mission, obviously the intelligence asset isn't going to tell the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance person his real name. So they did, they use these code names. It was kind of funny because I was listening to the audiobook version and the uh, man that hired them both, his name is Arjun. But mm -hmm. in listening to it, I wasn't familiar with the spelling of the name. So it sounded like Argent, which is the, the other name for silver. And yeah. so I, oh. I just thought he was, I thought he was another element there along for the ride. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Just the pronunciation, I guess. What is Court's current standing with the CIA and the U.S. government? Officially, he is persona non grata. They are officially after him. He, that's not a big element of this novel. In some novels in the series, it's, it's really important that if the agency's after him or if he's working with them. On this one, he's definitely doing freelance in the present. In the past, he was an employee of the CIA. But in the present, all he knows is when the last he was told was to make a run for his life that the agency was gunning for him. So that's as caught up as he is on the situation. There's even a part in the book where he talks to a former guy that he worked with in the agency, and he, he asks about the hunt for him and how that's going. But that guy, unfortunately for court, is too far out in the sticks. He's the uh, station chief in Papua New Guinea, so he's not really able to um, <laughs> provide him a lot of real-time information about what the executives at CIA think about him. And this is the first book in quite a few that's not based in Europe or the United States. Did you just feel it was time to get somewhere else on the globe? I like to move it around. To be perfectly honest, I like to pick places that I want to go and do location research because that's always my intention. With COVID, I had thought when I planned the book around India, I thought I'd be able to get into Mumbai and because they were talking about opening up visitor visas. COVID was the reason that they shut them down. And then it just wasn't happening and it wasn't happening. So I tried to get in on a business visa and they ended up shutting those down as well in the window I had to do the research trip. But my intention was to go to Mumbai on purpose, you know, like, because I always wanted to go. Fortunately for me, a reader of mine is also a writer who is Indian and lives in Mumbai. And she just took it upon herself to go to different locations. And, you know, I asked her if I could run some ideas by her to see if I had the area right. And she, on her own, just took trips and drove around, took pictures, sent me stuff. She read all the copies. She read the little smattering of Hindi that's in the book. She, you know, she vetted all that. So she was really invaluable. I made the poor decision. I should have done the book in Vegas or someplace that would never shut down, <laughs> no matter how bad COVID is bad. 
But in this case, this time last year, up until the summer, I was just scrambling going like, how am I going to get into India? But she came through and was my angel on this. Is there any bit of copper that's in her? You know, I don't know her all that well, other than just some emails back and forth. But yeah, I guess so. I mean, copper is very, very young. I think make her about 24 years old. The whole idea was that copper throughout this story, or Priya Bandari is her name. She doesn't have all the skills, but she has incredible will because of her personal reasons. So I wanted to make it a very personal story to her and where she's able to kind of like dig within herself and achieve what she needs to achieve. Whereas Court is the guy that comes into it with all the skills already. Court sees a dead man, and that's really what launches the book on its ultimate path. Yeah. Murad Khan is the man that he ends up seeing in Algeria. He's not expecting the actual mastermind of the plot. 12 years ago to appear because everyone thought that Murad Khan was dead. He thought it was going to be like one of the henchmen that he might get his hands on and find out some more details about Pakistan's involvement in the events 12 years earlier. But instead he finds, you know, the big enchilada right there, the guy that the whole plot in the 12 year ago timeline is centered around. So once he sees Murad Khan, he instantly knows he has to kill him. That doesn't work out the way he had hoped. So then he realizes not only does he have to track him, but he also has to help Priya Bandari, who herself is is in some trouble. It's appropriate enough that Priya is in her mid-20s. And then when we flash back 12 years ago to when Court is joining the goon squad, he's in his mid-20s as well. Yeah. And it was actually fun for me to kind of dial back his, I don't want to say maturity, because you can be mature at 25, especially doing the things that he does for a living. But I just kind of dial back his personality a little bit to make him a younger man. This is nine years younger than he is in any of the other books, because I think the first book in my little clock in the books is probably about three years previous to this. So it's fun to put your characters younger, even another character, Zach Hightower, I make him a very different character than he is in the rest of the series, because whereas he's pretty lighthearted and jokey and sort of comic relief in other books in the series, in this one, he's the leader of this paramilitary outfit, Gulf Sierra, and he's lost men, and he's right in the middle of the global war on terror, and it just didn't make sense to have this leader of this hard-charging group be a complete, you know, Jerry Lewis or something like that. So I, <laughs> I, I dialed his personality a little bit differently to account for that. Why would they want to bring, and at the time he was a very successful singleton operator out in the field, why would they want to bring him into a squad like the Golf Sierra? They wanted to bring Gentry into it because they lost two of their Sierra Sixes and they needed a new guy. And Matt Hanley, who's the person in charge of that task force and another one. He's a sort of a group chief at CIA. He is told that court has all these incredible tactical and martial skills. And he's also this incredible deep cover singleton operative. And they know that in this hunt for this character in Pakistan, known as Pasha the Kashmiri, they are going to have to infiltrate into Pakistan and they want a guy who's really good with tradecraft, not just good, you know, kicking down doors and shooting people, but able to do that as well. So he's integrated into the unit with some difficulty. And so what are those difficulties from being a lone wolf pretty much versus being the first guy through the door in a team? Yeah. So from the the standpoint of the other people in Ground Branch who are all former military, they can't even understand why they're talking to a character with no military service. But the backstory for Court is that his father 
was trained law enforcement and military in uh, firearms tactics. So he had a shooting school and a shoot house down in Florida. And Court basically grew up in the shoot house with all the teams and playing the opposition force where you're the bad guy and the guys come in and you're all shooting at each other with paint rounds. So that's where Court developed his skill. He can't even really explain this to the special activities division guys because they're not read in on the program that he was in in the CIA. So it creates a lot of tension between Court and the, the rest of his team. Even when they work together, there's a lot of tension between them. Hightower thinks he's not even old enough, let alone experienced enough, to be part of Golf Sierra. In Ground Branch, you're virtually always over 30, from what I understand, and and often quite a bit older than that. And Court is 25, again, doesn't have military experience, has four years of experience in the agency. And I think I think I say that two of those years were in training. So he's pretty wet behind the ears. But when he gets into the shoot house with these guys, he's sloppy with his team tactics, but he's he's incredible with his you know solo skills. So they do give him some credit for that. I thought it was nice that he wasn't perfect on all his runs, but he was very much good enough to impress people. You know, I, I never want to write him as a super man. I mean, the books are over the top intentionally. So there is a lot of like death-defying things that go on, but I don't ever write him perfect. He always has his vulnerabilities and foibles. And in the shoot house, you know, you're just running evolution after evolution. And there's a lot of of these paint rounds going in all different directions. So he's going to catch one every now and then, even if he is really talented. There's another new character beyond Priya who pops up in the book. She's an odd duck. Julie Marquez, and she is an analyst for CIA. She's in their operations division, and she's assigned to this task force that goes over to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, along with Court and the goon squad. She and Court kind of develop a relationship. She's on the autism spectrum, and she sort of explains that to Court at the beginning, who's completely unaware that there is such a thing or any of the details about it. But, you know, I kind of wanted to to show two things. One, people on the autism spectrum are incredibly intelligent, incredibly trustworthy and and out there. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, show the skill and, and intelligence of her. But also I wanted to sort of show Quartz naivete. And she's such a direct young woman that it's very kind of putting Court off balance because he just doesn't really have good people skills. And again, it's just another point of tension in the story. She makes some pretty keen observations in the surveillance photos that she's checking out and and the video feeds, trying to suss out what the opposition might be doing. Did you lift those particular instances from any real life analysts who've been able to pick out things like that? Yes, more or less. I've been to the NGA, which is the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is one of the three-letter intelligence agencies. It's one you don't really hear. You hear about CIA and DIA, which is Defense Intelligence Agency, even NSA, the National Security Agency. But geospatial intelligence is understanding geography, understanding buildings and structures, understanding capabilities of like a local police force and reaction times and all those sorts of things that are really, really important at the tactical, and probably at the strategic level, but definitely at the tactical level. So it was years ago, I went to NGA, I was researching a Tom Clancy book at the time, but I always, you know, I I subscribe to a lot of things. And I always read these stories of of how these things were kind of put together. And when I was at DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, I saw, or maybe this was at NSA, I can't remember, I was at one of the three letter agencies in the DC area. And I saw the actual mock-up for the Bin Laden 
compound in Abbottabad, the one they actually created to show to the uh, head of the CIA and to the SEAL teams and stuff like that. So they're able to actually just render these things like perfectly and really understand the ground and the buildings and all that. It's a little talked about, but very, very fascinating aspect of intelligence work. It's amazing how much detail they have on like these architectural plans of the places they're going into. Sometimes more and sometimes less. But yeah, I don't know if they're still using it, but they had this thing called Map of the World, which was a classified or confidential program where you could literally click on a city, click on a street, click on a house, find out who lives there, you know, down to that level. And obviously in certain target areas, they're able to say, do they have a dog, you know, (laughs) or are the local cops friend or foe, that sort of thing. So it's amazing what's out there. Well, I wish they could tell me where I keep putting my gloves. (laughs) Yeah, there's all sorts of stories that I read and they're just the the practical applications of of some of this stuff is just really fascinating to me. But yeah, you wonder if if these people spend all their focus on their work and they're probably just as uh, disorganized and (laughs) lost as the rest of us. Well, do you think that you're being surveilled because you deal in this stuff and you might accidentally hit upon some truth that wasn't really known just by accident, just kind of dreaming something up? I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I mean, we're all being surveilled. You know, I could talk to my wife about a paint color and then in Facebook see an ad for that exact same paint color. You know, (laughs) so there's so much of that just sort of going on organically or inorganically. I don't worry about it too much. I mean, definitely, you know, some of the websites that I go to for research, I can't imagine them, them not being monitored to see who's going to see them because, you know, just over the years, it's been different things, but it's been pretty much every bad actor known to man. And it's just part of the work. And I really don't worry about it too much. I think I can talk my way out of it by like holding up 21 books and saying, this is what I do for a living, but (laughs) it's never actually come up. So do you have a a location and uh, are you already writing the, the next court book? Yes, I am uh, working on book 12 right now, slowly. I've been doing a lot of promotion for Sierra 6. I'm just now really getting into it. But yeah, the location, it takes place in Switzerland and in the U.S., mostly in New York. So we need to talk about the movie. In many years of development and turnaround and project changing producers' hands, it looks like this year is going to be the year the, the Gray Man movie is available for audiences. Yeah, amazingly, it's going to come out in July. I'm sure I've been coming on your show for... 12 years now, <laughs> telling you that there was a film deal. <laughs> that was all true. It got close a couple times, and then it would just die on the vine for years. And for years, I would hear something different. Some other director is interested, or some other star is interested in playing the Gentry character. And it was honestly to the point when they announced that Ryan Gosling was going to do it, and Netflix was going to spend $200 million to make it. I really just thought, okay, how's this going to die on the vine just like everything else? And I, and I fully expected that to happen. So it was literally not until last year when they started shooting scenes in Europe where you know people could get little video clips of the scenes that are being shot and I could see them where I was like, oh, this is actually happening. Were you able to go over for any of the filming? I didn't have any direct contact with them while they were filming. filming. I've talked to the Russo brothers who are the directors and also the screenwriters, Joe Russo was one of the screenwriters or the main one. I've talked to them about things, but it's usually very practical matters or whatever. I was not on set at all. And last year you had a, another form of media, an exclusive. Of course, you've had audiobooks for most of your books, if not all. But now you had an Audible original called Armored that came out. 
Yeah, last December it came out. It's an audio play, so it's not uh, an audio book. It is actors, sound effects, music, and I write the book almost as a screenplay, but just for audio. So it's all sound cues and dialogue. And uh, it was tough to write. I spent years writing it off and on and off and on. I honestly started this project like in 2011, thinking it was going to be a screenplay. It took 10 years for it to come out, for me to finish it, adapt it into an audio play. And I was really happy with the final recording. It ends up being five and a half hours long. It was about 600 something pages. And, you know, some people were like, it's kind of short for an audio book. And I'm like, yeah, but it's the longest play. If you went to a play and it was five and a half hours long, you wouldn't walk, <laughs> walk out the front door of the Orpheum and said, this thing is too short. It was a lot of work. And then to, get, to have, I think there were 29 or 27 actors involved, plus all the sound effects and other technical things. It was, it was quite a big undertaking. Man. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. But aren't you reverse engineering it into a proper novel? Yeah, that's a good way of that's a that's a good way of explaining it. I need to start using that. More like just really expanding the story a lot. So the novel Armored comes out in July and it's not just me taking the audio play and taking out the sound cues. It's a much expanded story, so you see a lot more fleshed out characters. There are limitations to doing everything via audio. I mean, things only work because I didn't use a narrator. So things really only work if one person is saying them to another, or it's something that you hear and, and can tell what it is. You have to tell the story a certain way. And going back to turning it into a novel, 155,000 word book, it really expands the story quite a bit. Yeah, you don't have to have those exposition dumps as part of dialogue. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I was always very careful not to get caught doing too much of that because you know that's something I'm very critical of when I read other people's work so it actually for the audio play it helped it in ways because it, it made it really fast-paced and really visceral but the novel has every bit of action that the play has it just is story that's larger in scope so the day we're recording this the Russian invasion of Ukraine has begun in earnest I think I, I did hear that the Chernobyl nuclear waste containment facility might have been destroyed in the action. Mm -hmm. Does this invasion make Red Metal 2 very much more difficult to write? Probably not. I mean, Red, Red Metal involved a Russian invasion of the West, and they invade through Poland into Germany, among other things. Red Metal 2 will take place in Asia, so it will be China and Taiwan. Obviously, the whole geopolitical landscape can be altered before Red Metal 2 comes out, but we're in the writing process of it now. My co-author is working on it now, and once I finish Gray Man 12, I will join him and sort of take the reins on some of it, and we're going to do some location research. You know, everything that's happening in Ukraine, it's a lot closer to what I wrote with Tom Clancy in his last book, Command Authority, which came out right before the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they took the Crimea. And it was about an invasion of the Crimea and the eastern regions. So, you know, I did a ton of research on Russian military actions in Georgia and Dagestan and places like that. And, you know, at the time, felt like I knew quite a bit about it. And also writing Red Metal, I felt like I knew quite a bit about it then, too. It's, it's not been in my brain for the past couple of years because of other things, but I've definitely been watching the news. So do you have any idea, any inklings on how all this is going to play out? Well... I think the invasion will be harder for Putin than he thinks. I do think it will be wrapped up. Depends on how far he wants to go with it. I, I definitely think he wants to decapitate the government and put a puppet in. I don't think this is just about getting some more eastern regions. I do feel like he wants control over Ukraine because 
Ukraine's relationship to the West, he sees as a, as a direct threat to him. I'm not sure how far he's going to go with it. I think he has the military capability to do it, but he has put a massive percentage of his military strength into this. So he definitely can take Ukraine. I don't think the military is, is a match for his over the long haul, but I do think it'll be costly for him. And it's just a question of if there's the political will and coordination in the West in my opinion, no Russian should be able to do any banking anywhere in the West. I think that would hurt Putin. We should definitely recall ambassadors, expel students, and all those sorts of things. I mean, this is, a, this is the largest military act in Europe since World War II, and it's really horrible. And this shouldn't be something that is a slap on the wrist, just like all the other slaps on the wrist that we've given Putin over the years. Yeah, I've seen some people in other countries who have nuclear weapons say, well, there's no way we're going to give up our nuclear arsenal given to what happened to Ukraine when they were the third largest nuclear power after the fall of the Soviet Union. We negotiated with Ukraine to hand over their nuclear weapons. And then I guess during the second Bush administration, or maybe the first Obama administration, we got Ukraine to give up a whole lot of surface-to-air missiles and things like that because we thought they could be used by terrorists if, if they fell into the wrong hands. So, you know, we have not been you know, very helpful ally to the nation of Ukraine. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for talking with us on Book Talk. It's been a pleasure speaking to you over, you know, the 11 books of the Gray Man series, and we've talked about some of the others as well. It's always just such a, a pleasure to be able to talk to you and find out what's going on in your universe. Same here, Stephen. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Be safe.